Welcome to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. I am Beth Shank, host of the podcast, along with our guest host, Dr. Shanda Demarest, who is interviewing faculty members and educators from the School of Nursing Commitment, an important focus of the Nurses Climate Challenge. In this episode, Shanda has a wide-ranging conversation with a climate nurse and educator, Dr. Mark Seaman. Enjoy! Late in August, the lure of the mountains becomes irresistible. Seared by the everlasting sunfire, I want to see running water again. Embrace a pine tree, get bit by a mosquito, see a mountain bluebird, find a big blue columbine, get lost in the firs, hike above the timberline, sunbathe on snow and eat some ice. Climb the rocks and stand in the wind at the top of the world. That's Edward Abbey in Desert Solitaire. And I am a big fan of that book and uh, several of his others. But I wanted to open with that um, because this conversation today is with Dr. Mark Seaman, who is a pioneer of climate nursing in the American West. Uh, Dr. Seaman is an assistant professor of nursing at Southern Utah University. And Mark, he has a storied career across the West as a public health and community health nurse. In 2008, he was awarded a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Fellowship with the University of New Mexico Nursing and Health Policy Collaborative. And um, now he leads climate and sustainability education in the nursing school at Southern Utah University. And in our chat today, um, Mark takes us on a geographic tour of the American West. He talks to us about Idaho and Arizona, New Mexico and, and Utah. We chatted about his experience as a caregiver with Native American tribes, particularly in, in rural Arizona and New Mexico and his partnership with the Navajo there. Mark shares how major barriers to access and basic resources like water and electricity, how that influences folks' health in rural America, um, but, but how it's also complicated by people's ability to basically engage in preventative health measures just to the due to the complexities and challenges meeting those basic needs in rural settings. We go into the water crisis both in tribal nations, but but then also beyond um, in the broader American West, including the dire state of the Colorado River and, and the Great Salt Lake in Utah, due in part by impacts of climate change, but also due to basically inappropriate resource consumption. So I hope you enjoy, yeah, a little, a little trip out West with Mark. Um, it's a critical conversation, but, but of course, if you're not somebody from the American West, I encourage you to think about, you know, what's happening in your state and in your community and what climate issues within your region are, are particularly pertinent. So again, to close, this is Shanda Demarest. I'll, I'll give one more Edward Abbey quote. I just can't help myself. It's too good. Wilderness is not a luxury, but a necessity of the human spirit, and as vital to our lives as water and good bread. A civilization which destroys what little remains of the wild 
the spare, the original, is cutting itself off from its origins and betraying the principle of civilization itself. So thanks for joining me. We appreciate all of you listening into the Nurses Climate Challenge podcasts. And from here, I turn it over to Dr. Mark Seaman. Mark, great to see you. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you, Shauna. Wonderful to be here. Oh, well, I um I relish the opportunity to talk with somebody who spent a lot of their life in the southwestern part of the U.S., the western part of the U.S. in general. Um, I know I know you and I are brought together by climate and that connection with nursing, but I'm also somebody who holds a special place in my heart for the area that you've spent so many years. And I would love to just start there. How did you, how did you end up in um, Utah? New Mexico, Arizona, Idaho. Just give us a little bit of an idea of what your geographical path has been. Sure. Well, again, thank you for the opportunity. And, you know, my background, I, I graduated from Boise State University in Idaho. I grew up in Idaho in a small rural community uh, and, uh, you know, was fortunate, had a great uh, uh, back uh, childhood and growing up in the outdoors and, and hiking and skiing. And, and uh, yeah, after I got my, my nursing degree, uh, looking for opportunities in public health. I'd always been, always been interested in public health and was able to work uh, in Boise uh, with the Central District Health Department as a nurse epidemiologist and and uh, really enjoyed that work, but wanted to branch out a little bit more, get a little bit more experience. And so I uh, landed, uh, was very fortunate to land an opportunity with the Indian Health Service working in uh, first in the Northern Pueblos in Okeowenge and Santa Clara Pueblo in New Mexico. And then as a uh, later with the Navajo Nation Indian Health Service in uh, Chinle and Sale, Arizona, and just a, just a wonderful experience. I I tell people it was the best job I ever had as a public health nurse working in in Chinle and Sale, and then later transferred uh, because a lot of the things we were doing uh, as public health nurses it, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me you know and thought of just like everybody that well what i need is more education so decided to uh move to new mexico to albuquerque and enrolled in a master in public health program there at the university of new mexico while i was working with the pueblo of san felipe uh north of albuquerque and uh you know, and just again, just a wonderful, I just can't say enough about uh, my MPH program and, and the interdisciplinary nature and what really got me again, thinking really outside of some more of that, you know, the, the uh, nursing and what else we can do from an interdisciplinary standpoint. And, uh, you know, again, just uh, worked through that uh, degree and then into another degree and uh, Finally ended up, uh, you know, into this uh, area of academia and, and research and teaching and and I was fortunate to um, uh, teach back at Boise State and then uh, back down to southern Utah in the southwest where I am right now in uh, uh, Cedar City, Utah. So it came full circle back to Idaho <laughs> and then and then a little south again to Utah. Um so I want to I want to ask about a, a comment you made, but first you mentioned Chinle, Arizona, which is interesting. That's that's right by Canyon de Che, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. it's right. Yeah, it's right. Sort of not quite central Navajo reservation, but certainly again, it's a it's one of the areas in on Navajo Nation that's that's very sacred to the Navajo people, the Canyon de Che, um, and so a lot of history and a lot of uh, background there, um, you know. And so again, it was a wonderful place to work. I, and but that was just sort of the base as public health nurses, we would drive out to 
uh, other communities uh, within the service unit. You know, I would I would usually drive 30 miles just to get to, you know, a paved road and then usually another 30 miles of dirt road to get to people's homes. And, you know, again, a wonderful opportunity just working with uh, uh, lots of wonderful, wonderful people, especially the community health representatives, the community health workers uh, on the Navajo Reservation uh, and other other nurses. Just a, just a great opportunity. And so I'd encourage people, again, if they're interested in, uh, you know, again, working with uh, Indian Health Service, uh, it's a great place to work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, I'll I'll ask you in a moment a little bit about how during that period of your, you know, of your career, the, the climate came into play. But but first, you mentioned in that intro that you as a public health nurse were were doing some things that didn't make a lot of sense to you as, as part of that role. So yeah, like, tell me more about that. Well, it's, you know, I, I mean, some of the things that were frustrating, you know, again, I talked about the driving, you know, and we would drive half of the patients that we would go out to see weren't home, which again, it wasn't their fault. They didn't have, most of them didn't have telephones, you know, so we couldn't call them. And so we were doing, oftentimes we were doing post-acute care uh, hospitalization follow-up, you know, following up on people that had been discharged from the hospital. That was part of our job, checking on, uh, you know, women um, that were um, either pregnant or newly delivered with the uh, new infants. And, you know, again, all of it, very important work, but it really didn't seem like we were getting to the, you know, the cause of what was going on, especially looking at, um, you know, problems that were uh, beginning to, uh, we known about for a number of years, like type two diabetes, uh, other problems, obesity, uh, children's health, the school health. We were uh, partly responsible for the school health uh, in the, the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs Schools, which, uh, you know, meant that we would go and help with school screenings. And then that was about it. And so lots of opportunities I saw for health promotion and disease prevention, which is really where, you know, I wanted to focus my work. And uh, so that's what led me again to, to think about, well, what could we do that might be better? And we'd made some improvements while I was there, but there, and there were still lots of opportunities. And, and actually, um, you know, the, the uh, Navajo Nation um, health promotion program um, at the time was just getting up and running and, and they began to do a lot of work, especially after the special diabetes uh, program for Indians grant was, was initiated. And so they've made a lot of progress since I left around health promotion and school health as well. So lots of, lots of great work being done there. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. So going from that position and, and some of what you said resonates with me too, as a former bedside staff nurse, not public health, but in, in cardiovascular, a lot of the actions were like, wait a minute, we, we need a better system here. We're, we're doing the Band-Aid thing, right? Putting the Band-Aid on, on a hemorrhage. Um, okay, Mark. Yeah. So that, that makes sense to me about, you know, that, that portion of your journey where you're, you were curious about how to move more upstream, um, which is a big aspect of environmental health and climate health as, as nurses. So let's go there. Um, before I ask you about what you're up to as, as a faculty member now, because that's, that's the way that we were originally introduced, um, you working with your nursing students and teaching sustainability and, and climate action, I'm sure that you have some interesting you know, anecdotes or experiences with, with working with patients directly, specifically in these communities that are underserved, that have maybe water access challenges, perhaps 
you know, some of the most severe environments in the United States are down in the Southwest and in some of these desert communities. Was climate showing up for you as a direct care provider back then? And, and also before I forget, give us an idea of what, like what years were you a public health professional in those areas? Sure. Well, I started my career in, in uh, 1993 with, again, in Boise, more of an urban uh, health district, but we also had some rural communities uh, within the district. It was a four county district and then uh, worked with the Indian Health Service from 95 through 98, roughly, um, you know, in, in the Navajo Reservation and then into New Mexico with the Pueblo San Felipe uh, in the 2000, 2000 uh, to 2008, uh, partly as a, a um, commissioned officer and then later as a, a tribal employee. Uh, but, you know, in terms of the environmental issues we saw, I mean, obviously, this is a very challenging environment in the desert southwest. Um, you know, looking at specifically the Navajo reservation, the Navajo people, I mean, they were historically pastoralists, you know, where they would have herds of sheep and and lots of history there around the government, you know, again, culling of sheep due to, uh, you know, overgrazing and, and lots of concern, you know, around cultural uh, preservation around that. But, you know, specifically, I, I just remember one um, meeting that we were talking with, I was talking with some other public health nurses at Okayenta in the, in the 90s, and they were, they were really bringing this idea around, you know, community participatory action or community-based care and thinking about it. And so here we were driving around the reservation, you know, every day visiting individuals and not really thinking about, well, what is the, what is really needed in the community? What does the community want? What do they look for? And the one example that, that was brought up that I really kind of resonated with me is let's say the, the community, what they really need is there's windmill is broken and they need, they need the water for their livestock. So as a public health nurse, is that our responsibility? You know, again, absolutely. If that's the community's priority, you know, because again, my experience in working with other communities uh, in New Mexico, especially when the, you know, I mentioned the special diabetes program for Indians or the grant program, you know, when I first uh, began working for that program, di diabetes wasn't even on the list of priorities when we did community uh, interviews and, and, and surveys. You know, they were looking at things like tribal sovereignty. They were looking at things like, again, um, alcohol or substance abuse. They were looking at these were their priorities. And so it's just like in, when we were working with an individual at the bedside, you can you can hope and provide as much individual in, information as they want about their, their disease, whether it be heart disease or, or, you know, anything else. But unless they're, they're you know, you're meeting their priorities first, whether that be housing or again, um, lack of access to health insurance or something like that, so they can follow up and stay healthy, then then that's going to be it. It's a, it's really you know again it's a an area this that in public health we talk about the whys. You know why is this individual in my hospital for heart disease? Well, because they haven't been able to ha have a healthy diet or they live a very stressful lifestyle. Well, why? Well, because they're working two jobs and they live in a food desert or, well, why? Well, because again, there's, it's, you know, our, our some of our agricultural policies may not support, uh, you know, healthier food options that are less expensive or that, you know, again, our, our living wages don't s sustain a healthy lifestyle in these communities. And so it was really apparent in, you know, again, in many of these rural isolated uh, communities in both New Mexico and Arizona where, you know, the options, people were driving, you know, a long way for jobs and for work and for, for even for a grocery store. Uh, you know, it, the, most of the, the, the communities that I worked with in Navajo Reservation, they would have a trading post or, you know, at best a gas station that would serve, you know, again, lots of processed foods. 
And, uh, you know, that was, you know, we're driving 30 to 60 miles oftentimes to a, a grocery store. And even then you've got to go back and some people didn't have electricity and, or running water. And then you have to think about, well, how am I going to store this food or preserve this food? But, uh, and, and, you know, this is a relatively new phenomenon in, in uh, tribal communities. I mean, there was no type two diabetes in, in many of these communities, uh, because they did live a healthy traditional lifestyle. And so trying to think about how, what can we adopt from those, those lifestyles uh, and bring back and, and maybe improve, uh, the communities, uh, their life, you know, and it's all ultimately tied, I think, to the environment and the environment, both the physical and the social and cultural environments where they live. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. I, I heard you mention there the, I've heard of it as like the five whys. Yeah. Keep asking why <laughs> until you can't anymore. Um, and, and your comment about, you know, in working with communities, unless you're meeting those priorities that they have first, forget about it. And and that's, I think, something that's so complex for us and some of the work that we do at Healthcare Without Harm or Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments. Folks who are experiencing exceedingly pressing needs, housing, security, healthy food, um, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's really tough to engage communities in climate action if their their other critical necessities, you know, aren't aren't being, you know, if those needs aren't being met. Um yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I think too it's that, you know, whether it's connecting the dots or making those links between well this this is going to improve, you know, again, maybe sustainable farming uh if we again continue to to see this desertification of the, you know, the the southwest and 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 many areas in the in the world, you know, maybe again we can we if we improve some of this this maybe that will continue to you'll be able to practice, you know, one of the things that that was really unique about the Pueblo communities is they they were farmers. They've always had, uh, you know, sustainable. They've sustained themselves on on their, the food they grew uh, for for centuries and, and yeah. a thousand years. And and uh, you know that was because they had land and they had water. And as we see, you know, again the water sources dry up or the water sources their their allocation of water, the the uh, you know treaty rights not being um, you know adhered to or you know they're still trying to adjudicate. When I had left. And hopefully they have by now the the some of the water rights issues around the the middle Rio Grande um, and so you know it's a, it's again it's a complex issue with so many things but it it gets down to in those areas again tribal sovereignty and protection of of their people and that's a and because they are oftentimes a minority in many states but they are sovereign nations, but they're still, again, that voice that they have at the federal level oftentimes uh, isn't heard by a lot of, again, depending upon the agency. Obviously, Indian Health Service has a very close relationship with tribes, but you get out of the, outside of that, whether it be the EPA or some of these other agencies, HRSA, you know, again, it's it, it can be really dependent upon, again, a lot of different factors. And, but it gets down, as you said, to the community level. What are they doing at that community level to preserve uh, their environment so they can continue to, to uh, practice their traditional cultures, whether it be agriculture or grazing or, or other things? Mm, I love how you brought up, yeah, the, the sustainable aspects of living in one's environment. Um, I'm, are you an Edward Abbey fan? <laughs> yes, that's a, yeah. yeah, they have to be living in the Southwest. But. Yeah, I um. <laughs> 
I, I did a little digging in, in prep for our conversation. So Edward Abbey, for, for folks listening, he's an American author. Um, he passed away, I think, in the late 80s. But he was an environmental activist and is kind of known for being critical of public land policies and environmental issues, specifically in the areas that, that Mark is referencing here in the desert Southwest. And, you know, with your comment related to water, I would, I would love to discuss more with you about some of the critical issues that are happening right now. Um, Abby has this quote, he writes from desert solitaire, um, probably his most famous work. He writes, Water, water, water. There is no shortage of water in the desert, but exactly the right amount. A perfect ratio of water to rock, water to sand, ensuring that wide, free, open, generous spacing among plants and animals, homes and towns and cities, which makes the arid west so different from any other part of the nation. There is no lack of water here unless you try to establish a city where no city should be. So Mark, yeah. Any, any reflections on that? I guess you're living in the Colorado river basin, um, you know, just South of Salt Lake city as well. What's going on in your part of the, um, in your part of the nation that relates to this water crisis? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You bring up Edward Abbey. I mean, his other probably, most famous work is the monkey wrench gang and, and one of the plots yep. in the monkey wrench gang is is blowing up of glen canyon dam which you know is the dam that that uh, that dammed the colorado river upstream from the hoover dam which is you know the two lake mead and lake powell the two largest reservoirs in in the united states and and probably close to in the world but both of those now are at record lows i mean and there's talk now of even getting rid of glen canyon dam uh, because again, to, in order to preserve the water in Lake Mead, uh, and you know some of the impacts, environmental impacts that we, you know, all of this is based on you know these these assumptions of the the, the water amount of water in the Colorado Basin, uh, based on you know again not a lot of good data, and now we know. I mean, it was and the the in addition to the population growth that we've seen in the in the Southwest, whether that be Phoenix or Las Vegas, and and it really what what it gets down to in many ways not just the the um, drought that we were in, the worst in 1,200 years, according right. to you know again tree ring records, and and uh, but it's, it gets at also the, the how do we use that water? I mean, there is water that we could probably meet most basic needs for everybody, even given the population growth. But then it's what the water is being used for. 85% of the water in the Colorado River Basin is being used for ag agriculture, which is again we can't say that's a bad use but it, it could be more efficient and what is what are we actually growing with that uh, there were recently some information around uh, um, you know again in, in southern Arizona growing alfalfa uh, for cattle and a lot of that alfalfa was being exported and again it's how do we again change that paradigm you know whether we talk about you know what is the carbon impact of the food we eat or what is the water use of the food we eat and then how do we again I mean a lot of the larger cities Las Vegas especially has have done some really phenomenal things around water conservation and you know toilet to tap programs and things like that so they're very efficient users of water so now we're having to ask people that have been 
farming this way and living this life for a century to change uh, what they're doing. And that has real impacts, especially in the rural communities where, um, you know, it's already tough to, we know change is difficult. And now how do we get, they're already living on, I mean, farmers aren't making lots of money, uh, you know, at least the small farmers. And, and, and so how do we think about reallocating that water and, Ultimately, it gets into, you know, the, the federal government is going to have to decide. I mean, they've, they've gotten together the, the compact states that are in the Colorado River Compact and said, you know, they, they can't decide. And so it's going to be ultimately up to the, the federal government to decide. And that's going to be cause even, you know, again, more problems when you think about some of our political problems down the road. But we just can't go on like this. And so, you know, it's a in the it's interesting because when I talk to my students about climate change and 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 things like a drought, this 1,200-year mega drought that we're in, doesn't really resonate. It's not like a hurricane or an earthquake or some other disaster. But you know, when you think about the impact that's having on people's lives, not just the lack of water, but now the heat, the heat events that we're seeing more and more frequently, uh, how are people in these rural communities? Uh, going to adjust and adapt to this. I, again, I'm not so worried about the cities. The cities, again, they have, a, a, you know, I think a lot of power in terms of being able to, you see, and they've been doing this for decades now, buying up water rights so they can and ensure and they can have that. So how are we going to, and we're seeing that here, right here in southwestern Utah, where lots of debate as we see the population grow, where's the water going to come from? You know, and they're looking at water rights in other communities, which now, again, those other communities aren't very keen on that because that's their water. They see that as their water, but it gets to this antiquated, you know, system of how we allocate water, whether it be surface water or groundwater. And, you know, and again, it's not just going to be here in the U.S. When we think about globally and the impact that water has uh, in, in, you know, people's lives, I mean, it's necessary for, for life. And especially when we look in the, you know, um, Southeast Asia and in some of these areas that rely on, on glacier and and water from the glaciers and that are that are quickly declining and and other areas. So it's a it's a really scary prospect. Mm. Yeah, this um, your your commentary about specifically rural communities, you know, folks that are um, working in the agricultural sector. It reminded me, and as we talk about transitioning to, you know, more sustainable practices, practices that will help um, reduce industry draw on water quantity, um, it made me think a little bit about the fossil fuel industry and the coal and oil industry, too, where folks that are working in those sectors, you know, in, in rural America and sure this goes beyond our nation too but as we are thinking about what we you know would like to call innovations to reduce our dependency upon oil and and gas that's going to directly impact the folks in that sector and the same goes for um you know perhaps those people in southern colorado you referenced growing alfalfa well what happens when when that's no longer um you know, when, when that's no longer a viable option. So there are complexities here that go far beyond the environmental impacts, far beyond the human health impacts directly related to those resources, um, but but much deeper into the other social determinants of health. So yeah, I'll just give you one yeah, real quick yeah. example that really came to, to light to me recently was uh, when I was 
working on the Navajo reservation, they had a large, a lot of number of large coal mines. And, and one of the largest one was in Black, Black Mesa, which was um, again, more on the borderlands with the Hopi reservation, but huge open pit um, uh, mines that would, that would extract the coal. And then they would actually slurry the coal to a, and, and transport it, I think about 40 miles to a railroad station where it could then be shipped to the Navajo generating plant to be burned for electricity. And, you know, they had known there were a number of different environmental groups on the Navajo reservation working to, Navajo Nation, excuse me, working to, you know, change that uh, because number one of the water use, but also because again, the, the impact that it was having on tribal lands around this open pit mining. And and again, but people, those were those were jobs for people. You know that that they were working in the plant, the Navajo generating plant. That people relied on those jobs uh, for income. But just recently, and this was a, a huge plant, had three big smokestacks right out of Page, Arizona, uh, and you could see them from from you know miles away. And I was just recently driving through there last year, and the smokestacks are gone. And they've closed down all the mines. And you know, part of that is because of the the reduced um, um, profitability for coal. I think part of it was again because of the Navajo Nation um, Tribal Council and others finally began to realize what the impact was on their environment. But now, how do we switch that and think about how do we continue to use those transmission lines and the skilled workforce there that that knows about how to generate power and maybe look at cleaner resources, especially around solar power. You know, there's there's been actually a really neat um, kind of a, a really growth in solar power farms here in southwestern Utah. And they're realizing again that that this is the perfect environment, 300 plus days of sun a year. Uh, and again, it's offered lots of open land. And so I think there are opportunities for for both on the Navajo Nation and, and you know, here in the Southwest to, to build on that. Lots of, I was just driving uh, to back from Las Vegas after uh, traveling to, on a trip. To, but again, lots of solar farm development there. And so there's opportunities there to that to do that but again it's it's going to cost money and how what is industries uh and eventually those costs have to be oftentimes passed on to the consumer and so increasing electricity prices because now we're going from a not necessarily a cheaper form of, of uh, electricity because solar and, and wind are, are fairly, um, you know, they're they're close to, if not better than most fossil fuels, but just change, making that change, that infrastructure change, and how do we get the industry to do that while continuing to enable uh, consumers to, to pay their electricity bills? One uh, anecdote that you bring to mind is from another author here. This one's fictional. Edward Abbey has some fictional pieces too, but uh, <laughs> Desert Solitaire was not so much. Do you read Jonathan Franzen at all? The name sounds familiar. I don't think I have though. Uh, yeah. okay. right, right now, um, I'm reading one of his most recent books called Crossroads. And one of the um, settings, gosh, Mark, I'll have to send it to you. I'll, I'll <laughs> include it as a link for this too. But it's... It's in Arizona. It's just outside of Flagstaff on the Navajo Reservation, and it's open coal mining, and the population there is um, very adamant that, um, you know, that that land is being raped and exploited. Um, and interestingly, the community that, that this is occurring in, they actually don't have electricity. So they're mining <laughs> and sending it all out via substations to you know, big cities. Um, that's, that's fictional, but probably the experience isn't. Um, 
No, it's yeah, it's fiction based on fact. Yeah, yeah I mean, thirty percent of people on the on the on the reservation uh, probably continue, if not uh, to be, you know, without electricity. And and part of that's because, again, historically they've lived in these these spread out encampments because, again, they were pastoralists, and so they needed lots of room for grazing. And so it's hard to run a transmission line uh, to those distance. But again, there's there's you know solar power panels. That's why again, thinking about how can we again get electricity there without running a transmission line, an electrical line, but solar power and a battery backup is would be you know a perfect solution and there are people and there are especially tribal um uh i'll put some links in there there's native energy and some other tribal uh, run businesses that are doing just that thinking about how do we increase the solar power to these um members who don't have who don't have electricity water's a different issue water's a little bit different it's a little bit more difficult but yeah it's a you know and so but it's a it's you know they, these people have lived on these these lands for again thousand years and so they know how to survive in these lands. It's just these changes in our climate due to forces in it. And this is true again when we look at a lot of uh, low and middle income countries, especially in the South. You know, oftentimes they're going to bear the brunt of climate change, and yet they had very little to do with with you know again the problem that of climate change because they haven't been carbon emitters. And so how is the, you know, the, the richer, higher income North going to impact that? And that's why we see a lot of these problems when we get to these international negotiations and the South, I think rightly so demanding, uh, you know, compensation or some, some way to make this leapfrog transition to cleaner energy forms while, you know, the, the, the global North has largely been the one that have been driving climate change and uh, benefit from it. Through the burning of fossil fuels or fuels over the last 150 years, this this loss and damage concept is something that I need to learn more about. Um, and and I think that's what you're referencing. You know, whether it's within our own nation or or developing nations in the global south, like you said, experiencing the brunt of of climate impacts, and you know, looking to nations like the United States and others that are disproportionately utilizing more energy, contributing to more greenhouse gas emissions, and causing that damage, you know, helping fund these other nations to transition to more renewable energy sources, but also at the same time, providing financial support to repair the the infrastructure damage. I think of pa Pakistan right now with the mm -hmm. flooding, um, you know, and that's one of umpteen examples we could reference. But so, so Mark, I'm, I'm going to take a breath. Um, I think you've given us a really deep um, description of, of the area that you're in, of the communities that you've served in the past. And, and eventually, you know, some of the places that the students that you're teaching right now that they'll be practicing in. So I'd love to shift and hear about your experience as a nursing educator, bringing, you know, everything you've referenced into the classroom, into the clinical settings. Um, and I know you're also a nurse researcher working on some pretty cool projects. So uh, let's lay it out. Um, you as a climate nursing educator, how are you working with students right now? Well, it's tough. And, you know, again, nursing education is, uh, it, it's, it's a lot different than I thought it would be. I mean, it's it's hard being an educator. And I have a lot of respect for for uh, nurses that are good educators. I think it's a skill, just like any other skill that we learn. And and then specifically around you know my topic, which is public and population health, taking 
this, the, the, the care that nurses do and bring it out of the hospital in the acute care setting and looking at those social determinants of health and those social and environmental uh, factors that we know, you know, influence 40% of health outcomes and trying to get students to think about that. And, you know, and, and it's still related to nursing because that's the, the kind of the biggest lesson that I'm continuing to struggle with is how do you relate this to nursing? Because we continue to have, you know, in nursing education, which for a reason is an emphasis on acute care. You know, that's where most of the, the nurses are going to be employed. They're going to go into a hospital setting. But I, you know, I tell them, you know, all of your patients are going to go home, we hope. And and what sort of environment are they going home to? You know, not just, you know, do they have running water in their home or electricity or, you know, adequate food, uh, but, you know, what are some of the other things? You know, what kind of a community to live in? And, and and what are some of the things that we look at, you know, and, and sometimes I use, I think the best way to, to think about it is you mentioned Pakistan, but through a disaster lens and through a preparedness and mitigation lens. And so thinking about, you know, what is the impact of climate change going to be on that community? Are they going to see more frequent flooding due to high intensity rainstorms or weather events? Are they going to see, you know, lower uh, crop yields or other problems due to drought? Uh, you know, where is the water coming from? You know, we we take it for granted that we're going to walk into our kitchen or bathroom and turn on the faucet and we're going to have water running out of it. And that's not true in a lot of communities. And we've seen that, whether it be Jackson, Mississippi or Flint, Michigan, you know, potable water. So all of these environmental aspects and we, you know, we see the effects when they come into our hospital. But thinking, getting them to think, as we talked about those upstream factors, those five whys about, well, why is it that this community doesn't have clean potable drinking water in there? Or why don't they have, you know, again, uh, jobs that might be, again, um, that could promote a healthier environment? Um, so, and it's, it is really interesting and, and it is getting easier in some ways, unfortunately, because of these severe weather events. We talked earlier about, um, you know, before we were recording about the drying up of the Salt Lake, you know, we talked about the, the, uh, the Colorado River, but the, the Great Salt Lake is also at its lowest level ever recorded. And that, that doesn't necessarily have implications for drinking water, but it has all sorts of implications for air quality, because what's happening now is that lake bed is dried up and uh, and the winds will pick that up and blow that onto into the, the you know greater Salt Lake area metro area that's already suffering from huge problems with air pollution because of motor vehicle exhaust and other things. And so, again, thinking about that and, and why is the, the Great Salt Lake drying up? You know, part of it is climate change. Part of it also is is the the, the amount of water that, that that you know Salt Lake area has grown so much in the last uh, fifty years, and that. And just recently, again, another example, and I try and bring in is too. For example, Seattle just yesterday had the worst air pollution on uh, any place in the world, and again, due primarily to wildfires. And so, again, from a disaster perspective, thinking about the Paradise Fire or thinking about other of these fires, you know, that that impact severely impact people's lives. And what can we do in those communities to mitigate, uh, whether it be making it a fire safe community or thinking about, again, our practice over the past hundred years of putting out every fire and how do we now think about you know, fire as a ecological tool that we can use to prevent these larger fires. And so these take, again, uh, it's outside of the hospital. And that's where I think this, the, the struggle is, is thinking about, well, what's, what's my role as a nurse, you know, in a community that may be at risk for fires or maybe at risk for, for smoke from wildfires? 
and part of its education, educating the community about that, but also part of its advocating for changes in policies, which again, when we think about from a public health perspective, you know, that we think about policies, systems, and environments. And so what are those systems and policies that we might be able to leverage using our background as nurses, using our background as, you know, trusted health advisors to say, look, climate change is real. Climate change is happening. How do we get, mitigate and make sure that, that people have the opportunity to live the healthiest life possible? Because the way we're going, uh, fewer and fewer people have that opportunity because the impact of climate change is just impacting more and more people. You made the comment that it's getting easier to some extent to teach people about this using those extreme weather or disaster examples, which is, that is not something we want, you know, more and more examples that make it simpler to communicate the crisis that we're in, but you're absolutely right. Um, the work that I do with health systems and hospitals, we could say the same thing. The number of examples of hospital infrastructure being in, being inundated by severe weather or disasters, um, now we're starting to be able to attach dollar signs to that in a way that healthcare leadership is really concerned about. Um, and we're talking about a couple different populations here, nursing students or, or health professional students that are working with humans, you know, directly in, in support of their health, as opposed to health system leadership, which, you know, they are also responsible for running a business. We, we just have to be honest about that. Um, interesting. And, and my sense is, so I, I was a bachelor student in the late 2000s and sort of just on the edge of the 2010s this wasn't showing up in my curriculum then that you know that's a good 10 years ago at least maybe five years ago I think climate and environmental impacts were seeping a bit more into the health conversation but now it feels different to me when I speak with students now whether it's just you know, coffee chats or what have you, I get the sense that more and more young students that are just about to enter the health professional space are increasingly concerned about climate and environmental issues as they relate to their lives. But I think that connection of how does this relate to my nursing practice, we need to do a better job with that. What I'm, I'm curious what your experience has been in working with students in the past couple of years, bringing climate into the classroom, are they uh, are they thirsty for this knowledge? Are they seeing the connections? Yeah, again, I, I wouldn't say they're thirsty for it. I think they see. I mean, again, I, we're fortunate to have great students here. You know, in nursing, especially, you know, they come in, they want to help. They're they're in a caring profession. They understand you know, a lot of what that means. And they understand, I think, again, this generation, as you said, they understand the impact that climate has globally. And now how do we bring that into the, it's actually having an impact on individuals in your hospital that you're seeing, we're seeing the impact, you know, in the communities. And, you know, thinking about that, I think there's certainly, there continue to be, and again, this it's regional, it depends upon the region of the country where you are, some regions, you know, whether it be based on their their political uh, you know, leanings or others, uh, the impacts that may, they may have seen here, you know, in the Southwest, you know, we're fortunate here in the Southwest that we don't really see a lot of severe weather events. And so this association between climate and weather, you know, as it gets more, uh, again, as we begin to understand that better, but 
really, I think one of the things that when you were talking about that, it brings up to me is more this idea around interprofessional education. It's not just nurses. It's also, again, our physician colleagues. It's our healthcare administrators. You know, it is a bottom line issue, but the bottom line is that we need to work to keep people healthier. That should be the goal of healthcare, not to, to not to make people better necessarily. I mean, that acute care will always be necessary. We'll always need to be we'd be providing care to people who are sick and injured. But how can we reduce and mitigate those those illnesses, especially when they're related to, you know, again, things that we know we can change, such as air quality uh, and some of these other, you know, the heat events. That's going to be really interesting to see how how we move forward on these ideas. I mean, uh, and you know, I know the federal government with the infrastructure act has done some some interesting stuff i was just looking at the white house page around the uh, healthcare industry their commitment for for um you know climate and climate uh in healthcare and it's this is where again it's really going to be talking to those industry leaders to say great you've made this commitment now what are you actually going to do and having nurses be part of that change you know, whether we even expand it beyond climate change into, you know, the the products that we use in the hospitals and, you know, the work that Healthcare Without Harm has done around reducing uh, waste in hospitals and improving, again, sustainability in the in the in the bigger picture between not just uh, climate, uh, but also sustainability in general, because we're. Uh, as you know, I mean, healthcare is a huge emitter of both uh, carbon um, um, gases, uh, greenhouse gases, but also other pollutants as well. You know, whether it's plastics, the use of plastics in, in hospitals or toxic chemicals, all these things. And can we find, all, find alternatives that are more sustainable? And that's where, again, I think the opportunity for nurses who have the passion and the knowledge to make those connections with other healthcare professionals and then with their community and and join together and say, look, we we have to change because we know it can be done. We've seen hospitals that have done this, the Green Hospital Move and others. But you know, why isn't it? It gets into this idea we're about diffusion. How do we take these great ideas and diffuse it throughout, you know, the the U.S. and globally, the Green Hospital Movement? And I know they've been healthcare without harm has been trying to do that now for twenty years, if not longer. And we're still scratching at the surface. <laughs> I, you're absolutely right. Um, I'm glad you referenced the IRA, the, the Inflation Reduction Act. So there's an excellent blog that I'll link here um, that includes very explicitly the healthcare opportunities um, to basically to utilize the tax incentives that are available in the IRA to decrease the environmental impact of healthcare infrastructure, um, be that via alternative energy, alternative transportation, um, infrastructure transitions, both from a physical perspective, but also community infrastructure so that hospitals are better able to be anchors within their actual communities, the places in which these patients are living. Um, so thank you, Mark. I, I really appreciate the comment about systemic change and, um, you know, like you said, disseminating these in innovations so that it's not just individuals feeling responsible for their own carbon footprints, because we there's there's evidence that British Petroleum put out that concept in the early 2000s to shift away the corporate responsibility onto the individual consumer. Uh, so so that's the that's the world we're living in. And being able to use our nursing and health professional, our interdisciplinary health professional voices in partnership with leaders um, to frame this as a human health imperative. That's, that's the task. That's what our mm -hmm. ask 
is. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought up that issue of anchor institutions, because again, that's another great model out there where healthcare has a lot of opportunities out there to be the lead in this area, as do universities, uh, you know, and so, you know, lots of opportunities when we look at, you know, uh, green hospital, green universities, green communities, you know, with at a community level. Uh, and so hopefully we can, again, our nursing students, our pre-medical, pre-dental, uh, pre-PT, allied health students are all learning about their role. It's not just enough. And, and again, I, this is nursing's hard enough. And that's, again, I think one of the other challenges is to ask them, well, now we want you to be, you know, not only to be a great nurse at the bedside, you also need to be a great nurse, you know, at the, at the policy and community level, or at least participate somehow. And that's where, again, the Alliance of uh, Nurses for a Healthy Environment, Annie and other organizations can help nurses with that and provide resources and other opportunities to do that. Yeah, that that one gave me goosebumps. <laughs> so I, I'm going to ask you about your vision. But before I go there, um, I know that you have done some important work in the research space as far as, you know, doing an assessment of what's out there? What are nursing faculty, what are nursing students encountering in the academic space as it pertains to climate and sustainability? And and maybe just provide us an update of, of where you are with that research and if there's anything that we should keep our eyes peeled about in terms of seeing some of those results trickle into the wider literature. Yeah, and again, this a lot of this came from my, um, you know, work with um, Nurses for Climate Challenge and the School for Nursing Commitment. You know, so again, working with our university here to um, sign on, become one of the, the signatories to the School of Nursing Commitment, bringing, you know, even though I had been doing uh, climate and environmental health education in, in there, then also thinking about this wider, what about, what are other universities doing? What are other faculty, what are other students thinking about? And so looking at, I did some some research based on research that was done by Janet Richardson out of the, of the UK, uh, looking at the, the sustainability assessment of nursing attitude so looking at, uh, she looked at uh, four different countries in, in Europe um, uh, around attitudes around sustainability and climate change among nursing students. And so taking that instrument, that measurement instrument, and, and looking and see if we could do a, a wider um, survey of U.S. students and faculty. And so uh, when we first met, I was at the National Student Nurse Association meeting in Salt Lake City, was able to distribute that survey. I'm still right now, I was hoping to collect some more data, but I think I'm going to start analyzing the data and seeing that. But there was just recently a publication just came out, um, and I will post it, uh, send it to you, but using the same survey, um, and it was pu published in, I believe it was published in um, the nursing education Um but uh, it was, again, looking at just specifically around South Carolina. Uh, in fact, there it is. It's Amerson uh, Nursing Faculty's Perception of Climate Change and Sustainability by Roxanne Amerson and uh, nice. colleagues. And so, again, looking at just one state and primarily driven by the new AACN Essentials, the 2021 AACN Essentials that look at there is something in there around, again, disaster preparedness and looking at climate change. Uh, and then broader working with colleagues in the, uh, Scotland and uh, out of the Nurses Climate Challenge in Europe, thinking about, well, what are some of the standards? We have these educational standards that are adopted, you know, by nursing programs, accredited nursing programs in the United States. What about in Europe? 
you know, we know the European Union sets certain standards, but they really don't set the standards for nursing education. Those are pretty much country specific. So in talking with colleagues in Scotland, uh, you know, they're really, it's not being taught uh, climate change uh, in Scotland or in, and they're not sure about in Europe. Uh, and so talking about, you know, what are some of the areas, and I'm sure they're, they are teaching it, but whether or not there were actually, again, it's, it's uh, codified in uh, standards as we have here. And that's a start. And then the question is, what are we teaching? And is it making a difference? And that's going to be, again, future research, because even in the school, school of nursing climate challenge, um, you know, it's really, a, a, in my view, a, a pretty uh, minimal uh, in terms of what's required to be taught in the classroom. Right. I mean, and, and, and it's part of that's because the reality is that we're so content heavy in nursing. So other programs I've talked to have gone to, you know, a, an elective course looking specifically at, you know, climate and healthcare. I think, again, a, a, an interprofessional climate uh, and healthcare course would be ideal as part of, a, you know, any professional's um, uh, healthcare uh, education and thinking about that, and and then so that they come out of uh, whatever program they're 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 graduating from or going into, that they have at least some background on what is the impact uh, on health from climate change and what can healthcare professionals do about that, either at a local community or even individual level. That that's part of the vision right there. I I already heard the <laughs> intro to to your closing comment. Um, yeah, but Mark, thank you. I um I'll be interested to see where the yeah, wh where the research part of this goes and I'll definitely link the uh the South Carolina article. That's excellent. So as we uh as we say farewell here, I just like to invite you to to recap. What do you see as being next for us? What is your vision? Well, it's a, it's a tough time, as you know, with nursing and uh, nursing education. Um, we've been through this pandemic uh, and, you know, how do we again build back better, I guess, and, and stronger and include climate and, and uh, climate action as part of that. And uh, it's, you know, again, I, I look at it more of an, of an upstream organizational systems level. How do we get our, our, organizations, our healthcare systems to think about this in a more environmentally friendly manner and, you know, allow nurses to um, promote healthy lifestyles and, and healthy environments. And especially in those, the vulnerable and, and underserved populations that we know exist in our country that will address health disparities and improve health equity. Uh, and, you know, we don't have to look far uh, wherever we live to see those, those impacts and, and how they're gonna increase. And so I don't know whether I have an answer for it in terms of what do I see in the future, but I'm certainly hoping, I'm hopeful that this will continue to move up the ladder in terms of its importance in education and its importance in the, the healthcare industry itself in terms of, yes, we have to do this. I mean, we are, it is truly an existential crisis. We have to change within the next 10 to 15 years. Otherwise, again, unfortunately, what most people are predicting is then that's that critical point where then we're gonna to have to really talking about, you know, again, climate, uh, you know, migration, mitigating migration, you know, moving people away from these areas. And that's gonna have instituted its whole other set of problems that we know about. So if we can prevent something from happening like that, then by all means, we should be really, again, you know, working towards that as fast as we can. And I think, uh, you know, and this is a global 
responsibility. It's not just in the United States. So how do we think about that, you know, globally as global citizens? Because we can't, we don't have an option really, quite honestly. Well, from community to state to national to global, Mark, um, I certainly draw inspiration from your vision and, and your hopes for what we're going to do with the information we have at hand, how we as nurses can be true bastions for change. Um, I am so grateful for your time today. I'm grateful for the work that you do with the next generation of nurses and just want to express my appreciation um, for you as a climate nurse leading the way. It's great to talk with you today. Great. Thank you, Sean. And thank you for all the hard work and great work you do with NCC and, and uh, Healthcare Without Farm. Thank you to Dr. Shanda Demarest and Dr. Mark Seaman for this thought-provoking discussion about climate health and nursing in the American West. I often marvel that we are in the midst of an incredible transition with managing climate impacts, getting off fossil fuels, and finding better solutions. And from the midst of generational change, it is hard to see progress sometimes. Mark's comments help me appreciate the breadth of effort across public health nursing, tribal health, nursing education, and policy. Many thanks to you both. And thank you all for listening, and please check us out at envirn.org, and please subscribe, comment, and share the podcast. Talk to you next time.